Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Joining me today, he's a type 1 diabetic, four-time cancer survivor, author, obstacle course racer. It's Nick Klingensmith. How are you doing today, Nick? I'm just happy to be here, Alex. How are you doing? Doing good. We're so excited to have you on the show to talk about your Rise to the Challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what you like doing growing up. All right. Uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, I grew up on Martha's Vineyard. Um for those who don't know, it's an island in Massachusetts, and uh, it gains notoriety about once every 10 years or so, and then falls back into obscurity. <laughs> and uh, God, I must have been like six years old, I think. I was at a summer camp, and one of the local papers had swung by our camp, the little write-up or something, and it put a picture of the kids and what we said we like to do in the summer. And I was quoted as saying, like, I just want to run around outside with shorts and no shirt or shoes on. <laughs> That's what I like to do as a kid. <laughs> I I would still be living on the vineyard if it was endless summer. When you talk about being outside, was it sports, just being in nature? Was there a signature activity you preferred doing? You know, if different phases of life, but I'm definitely a beach brat. Um you know, I grew up, I didn't really grow up around boats much. Uh, I spent my time in the beach and the ocean. Um, I wasn't really good at a lot of the team sports, you know, as there's an age where all kids are sort of equally bad at something. And then, you know, as you grow older, some kids get more athletic and some don't. And so sports outgrew me uh, through a lot of them growing up. And then I found a love of beach volleyball when I was maybe 12 or 13 and, you know, this wasn't Southern California. This was Massachusetts. Uh, there was enough room on the beach for maybe one volleyball net before you hit water. And uh, but we played competitively. And that was a big that was a big part of my life for a long time. Um, so the six year old in me just kind of knew his quest was to be outdoors in the sun as much as possible. But I, I do love being on the water. It's just I was the working class guy. I didn't have a boat. Um, didn't really get a lot of time to go out on boats and you know, wasn't much of a fisherman. So that was sort of my, my island story. I just like to be out and active and social when I was younger. See, I'm a beach water guy, but I live in the middle of the Midwest where you're not even close to a beach. And the only thing is like the lake, which eh, it has, it has its benefits. But if I could be on the East coast, West coast, that's, that's my love right there. And you talked about team sports where we'll get into the obstacle course racing, where that's a solo event. I mean, you have other people, but it's either you're able to accomplish it or you don't. But then you talked about beach volleyball, where that ends up being a team sport over time. Do you do you feel that you were more of an individual growing up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, just just always was, whether it be... I'm trying to think of a polite way to say this. My parents weren't really all that involved in my life. <laughs> um, you know, I had a lot of friends growing up, but I like, I like to do things by myself um, and, you know, explored my own interests. And if you really look at the team, if you do look at the sports that I kind of played over time, um, you know, I played beach volleyball, but I played doubles. You know, I played indoor a little bit when I got older and that's only because I was living in Massachusetts and there is no outdoor beach volleyball in February. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, when I was in high school, uh, I got cut from the base, the freshman baseball team because I wasn't very good. And so I found track. And again, it's a team sport based on ind individual performance. And, you know, after after high school and college, it just became about working my way through college, um, continuing to play beach volleyball. And then really wasn't until six years ago that I even found obstacle course racing. So I like being part of a team. And I think that's probably why I like being part of a team is I never really, I never really felt like I was part of something for a very long time. No, that makes sense. Cause I think a lot of people can relate to that where maybe they had a hard time getting into that being in a team environment where I think for me, I was on a baseball team, but I wasn't in the same school district as all the kids. My parents were divorced. So I was always with my mom in a completely different school district, but I was playing baseball in another one. And I just didn't have that closeness with them. So I'd get there and feel like I'm an outcaster. And that's not how it should be. You shouldn't yeah. have to feel like that. And, or even with school where I don't 
hang out with people because I'm with my dad and going into that area. So I can relate to what you were talking about, but a lot of people can relate. And I think sharing it helps so many people here. Like, oh, I went through that. Did you have a, did you prefer long distance or short distance in track? Um, at the time, I guess I was considered a distance runner, but my events were one mile, two mile, you know, um, now that's not, (laughs) (laughs) um, I would, you know, for an 18 year old, I guess I was fast enough, but it's not like I wasn't the fast guy on the team. You know, I was a back of the pack for maybe the, of the good guys or kind of front middle pack of the, the people who are just happy to be there for moral support. (laughs) So yeah, my events were like the mile and two mile, and I ran cross country five Ks. Um, you know, I didn't start getting a distance until a couple of years ago. Growing up, did you have anyone that motivated you or was an inspiration in your life? Yeah, not the traditional sense though, necessarily. Um, you know, I mean, I'm just gonna looking back at some of the staples in my life, you know, first and foremost, it was probably my grandmother. You know, I mentioned my my parents weren't very involved and she was a huge part of my life for a long time. And, you know, you've got that sort of maternal figure, but just someone who, someone who shows you that something that you don't have exists, you know, and for mm-hmm. me at the time it was, well, love, yeah. um, you know, as I started, as I, I became more and more independent as I continued to get older. So, I mean, I wanted to start earning my own money when I was like 12, wow. um, by the time I was 13, I had found a guy, his name was, uh, his name was Bill Cleary and he and his wife owned a little muffin shop called Mrs. Miller's Muffins down at Martha's Vineyard. And I worked there for a long time. I worked for him until I was about 21 and he is somebody I'd looked up to for a long time. You know, um, they were business owners, good parents. He was a good father. He was like a father figure and a mentor to me. His son, I, ironically, 12 years younger than me to the day, I used to babysit. He actually lives down here in Florida. He's a very good friend of mine. Um, so, you know, there was people like that in my life. I mean, even in, in high school, one of the people I looked up to was my track coach. who was my math teacher. And he's somebody I still keep in contact with to this day. Um, you know, going past that, there was I'm going to say it was more like mentors and stuff. And now that I'm in this sort of life, and I can we'll kind of get to it to the, I'm surrounded by inspiration and motivational people. You know, I mean, I'm, I see 81 year olds out there doing what I do. I see paraplegics doing what I do. You know, people who make our condition look like a headache mm-hmm. are out there grinding it out, doing incredible things, loving life. And they just, again, it's you, the people who kind of have something that you want or show you that it's possible or those that I, I think I tend to gravitate to towards. Out of the people that you mentioned, is there something that they've said to you that you still utilize today and always will remember? Yeah, that one's my track coach. Um it's ironic, not ironic, but I, I got to see math teacher, Mr. Gartner, and track coach, <laughs> Mr. Gartner. And math teacher, Mr. Gartner, well, I sucked at math, and I was just a student like anybody else. And But uh, track coach, Mr. Gartner, you know, he brought me to the mall to, to buy my first running shoes, you know. Mm-hmm. But he used to sign all of his emails to the track team as always do your best. And as a sales leader, I have signed all of my emails to my team since then as always do your best there's uh there's another particular time and that's something just i remember from time to time like it doesn't matter if you're going to win if you're going to get this one thing done it's there's no excuse to not be your best to give what you have you know by whatever standard you have left and there was another time where it was uh it was like junior year i was really sick um i hadn't eaten or drank anything in a few days and we had a track meet that afternoon and I went down to the gym and I was just, I was literally about to walk up to him and tell him like, coach, I can't run today. Like I'm, I'm sick. And he was like, yeah, Hey, just one second. Let me address the team. And he went to give his little pre-meet speech. And as he did it, he's kind of going on. And I don't remember the exact, the exact like story he told, but then he finished it with never miss an opportunity to race against the clock. Wow. As soon as the meeting was over, he started to walk up to me and I just, just walked back and started lacing up. <laughs> I'm like, yep, nope. He didn't know it, but he was talking right to me. So, I mean, there's definitely a few lessons that, I mean, we're talking 25 years ago that have, have held on very well. I love hearing that because 
even that signature and you mentioned for especially like racing it's better to cross the finish line even if you're not first because you feel that self-accomplishment that i did this instead of well i didn't get first i'm just gonna quit right away like you go for it you get across that finish line no matter what happens and i was listening to uh david goggins new book uh never finished and uh i'm I'm cruising the, through the audio version, but he talks about Moab 240. It's a 240 mile race. And it just sounds about the most awful thing ever. invented. <laughs> and you know, him, if you know anything about him, like he's an incredible athlete, but that's not what he's known for. He's just, he's incredible at suffering. And that's, that's sort of his thing. And so he had all but quit the race. Officially he had DNF because he had left the course to go to the hospital. And as he's like recovering, he kind of looks at the watch and looks at his wife and he's like, you know, we got time to finish the race, right? <laughs> so they drove him back out there. And even though it was unofficial and didn't count for anything but him, he legged out the rest of those 40 miles. And that was like, he talks about that. He's like, I did that for me. I did that to know that I could. When we get into high school, sometimes we're asked, what's that dream job of ours? Growing up, what was that dream job for you? Oh, that one's kind of easy. I always wanted to be a writer. Okay. How so? I mean, since honestly, since I was like Harriet the Spy, I used to carry around this little red notebook, um, although I didn't write about other people. I mean, if I took trips, which which we called Off Island, because <laughs> the, there was the vineyard and the rest of the world. Yeah. <laughs> so when we go Off Island, I always had my notebook. I was always writing little stories. And I remember it was like the first grade or something. or Yeah, I remember fir- the first grade. I went to turn in my daily writing assignment to my teacher um, and she gave me a bad grade on it. And I'm like, why? She's like, you can't start a page with the word and. And I said, (laughs) and I stormed back to my desk and she's like that. I was mad. I come back with the sheet from yesterday and I said, I didn't. And for, for some reason to have a, like a first grader continue the story was like baffling to her. And that was like the first time something occurred to me that I I see this is something I'm different at than some of the other kids in a good way. Um, You know, it was the fourth grade. We did like another writing assignment where you're supposed to write a book or a story. Most kids wrote about some dream they had or nonsense. I wrote like a detective novel. And when I finished it, like I got a standing ovation, like from fourth graders. (laughs) Um, And it was just something I always enjoyed. And part of it was like an escape for me. Um, But there was a good period of time, mostly in my 20s, where I talked about it a lot. I thought about it a lot, but there was no more pen to paper, you know. Mm -hmm. And so, like, it was something that was that was kind of always there. But uh, that's my free time now. If I wasn't talking to you right now, I'd be sitting outside typing and writing and something. Did you go to school, like college for something else instead, because maybe a different passion or a different (laughs) career choice? Yeah, you are looking at Special Agent Nick Klingensmith right now. Um, I was uh, <laughs> I was pre-law. Well, as UMass Amherst did not have a pre-law program, but I took pre-law classes. Um, I wanted to be, you know, I said I wanted to be a, a, a writer since I was a little kid. But as far as like, that was my dream job, I guess. The profession I thought I was actually seeking to be was that of a lawyer and ultimately an FBI agent. Um you know, I don't know. I don't think it was but a year or two after college that I abandoned that. But <laughs> throughout college, that was so, you know, I paid my own way through school. Um, as a matter of fact, I got to go find the piece of paper, but I'm pretty sure I just made my last college payment at 43 years old. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I I was working 40 hours a week in a restaurant my major was all reading and writing. So it's like I never slept. And it's not like you can, you know, you could be smart and do things quickly, but I can't read a lot faster than I can just, it just takes time. Yeah. And there was one night, it was like November of my senior year and the LSAT prep book was sitting on my desk and it's nice packaging and everything. And I was like, all right, well, I have a history exam in like four and a half hours. I haven't started studying for, um, <laughs> and then, and it wasn't by lack of desire. It's just like, I mean, I maintained a social life and went to the gym, but it wasn't, those were not the priorities. You know, I worked Mm -hmm. a lot. And if I was going to scrub the back wall at Applebee's on Saturday nights, I wanted to make sure I was doing it for something. So I worked very hard in school and I'm sitting there and I'm like, I've already deferred my LSATs twice. 
And that book is still sitting there laughing at me. And I finally, and I, I never wanted to skip a year. I, I just knew if I didn't go right after college, I wasn't going to go. Mm-hmm. And I had made that decision that night. I was like, well, I don't know if I'm ever going to go, but I'm not going next year. And just focused on finishing out the school year. And I thought I did. I needed that other time for three and a half years. I grinded away but by the time I finished like my major, my minor. And I just had a couple me- like months left of, you know, spring semester. Like it was, Oh wow. This is the fun part of college. <laughs> exactly. I just feel, I look back at my college and I'm like, okay, none of this I'm ever using. Why am I wasting thousands of dollars for this? I love the workforce to really test myself and really see, am I prepared in like, a street smart way than a book smart, but I hope one day I go back or not, not go back to school. So if I said that people would be like, you're lying. I go, yeah, I am. Go back to what my major was and hopefully find a job where I was sports management, but I have nothing to do with sports right now. And that is my dream. But you talk about the fun part where at college, you're supposed to experience living on your own enjoying other things. And I feel like I did that. But I feel like school just takes over your life and you just see people stress out, drop out. They can't pass classes. And it's like what college needs to be restructured. But that that's a whole nother episode. To, like if for a whole hour and 30 minutes, people could talk about that. You know, there's one thing that helped me. I think that a lot, two things that prepared me for college better than a lot of other kids. Three things. Again, no, number one, I was neglected by my parents. So I... I was already independent in a certain yeah. way, at least for survival mode, right? Like, I mean, there are still regular everyday things that men are supposed to know how to do that I don't. And that's fine. Like I've, I've given that up. That's what Google's for. Um, going to boarding school for high school helped a lot. Because um, uh-huh. when I went to college, it was just, okay, I'm already away. As a matter of fact, I was closer to home, by the mm-hmm. you know? Um and the third part was because of the guy that I went to go work for in the muffin shop, you know, he really taught me work ethic. Yep. I haven't had a night's sleep in 30 years. So when I was in college, I didn't have to worry about, oh my God, how am I going to get this done? It's like, that's because you're looking at the clock thinking you need you to sleep for the next eight or nine hours. I'm looking at the clock saying I've got 11 hours until my thing starts. Mm-hmm. I have 11 hours that I can use. I mean, there I can't tell you the amount of times like, this is probably why I got diabetes. Cause like, you know, I'd get home, I'd get off of work at Applebee's where I was cooking at one o'clock in the morning or something. So I'd stop by the convenience store, I'd get a cup of coffee and just a buttload of candy. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, basically I like, it was like a, like a gamer and like, it was all just like a bunch of Red Bulls and, and sugar. And so sometimes, uh, you know, you'd study, you'd be like seven in the morning. I'm like, all right, I got 45 minutes that I can kind of shower and start my day but sometimes like you wake up and it's just like a a mess of wrappers and you're like what happened here (laughs) for anyone listening that's not how you get diabetes where everyone thinks oh you have sugar and that's how we all got but i guess i was a cosmic brownie person and like mountain dew dr pepper all the high sugar stuff and everyone's like that's how you got diabetes i go no that would be the easy answer but that's not how i got it but leading into that for someone that's listening to this Nick and I have similar journeys as type one diabetics. And as I was reading your book, I actually found we were only a year apart from when I was diagnosed and when you were diagnosed with I'm trying to, you were 28. I'm 27. Now I was, my mom and I were talking about this yesterday. I was 12 when I got diagnosed in 2008, I believe. And I think you were 12. Oh, so the year, that's what you meant. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I was like, I was listening to your and... podcast the other day and I thought, uh, with, I forget his name. I have to look, but the other type one diabetic guy, um, a couple weeks ago, I'll have to look, but I've had a few. He's in the military. He's like, uh, works in the hospital. Oh, Cody. Yes. Yes. And I remember you saying, I'm like, wait, no, you were like younger when you got it. That's right. Yes. Cause but it was all... one year apart. So yeah. Cause I was 2007. Yeah, and I was 2008, because I couldn't remember. I knew what grade I was in, but never what how old I was. But I was actually your age when I got it, which is the other. Okay. Talk about that story. Talk about leading up to the diagnose and how it happened. So, you know, I, like, I feel like every story needs like three backstories. But um, <laughs> as part of the beach volleyball, um, I... 
I told you I had played indoor for a couple of years up in Massachusetts before I moved to Florida and indoor is a far different game. So yeah. it's a power game. I'm five foot 10. I've never been a big power player. I was quick on defense, but that's, it's different. So all of a sudden I don't have one guy in front of me that I can hit around. I've got two or three that are a foot and a half taller than me. And so I, I created a really bad habit to try to hit around the block where I dropped my shoulder and point is I ended up having this bad motion and I tore it a lot. <laughs> so fast forward 2006, I finally had to get surgery. I mean, I was like, it was just dangling around my arm. And um, so I had surgery and it was pretty extensive. I mean, there was three separate tears. There was two splinters and a complete separation because for years I had just let this go on. And as I'm recovering, so I was maybe, I was a little overweight at the time. I was about 208, 210 pounds. Uh, and this is in the late fall of 2006 when I got the surgery. And by January, I was 153 pounds. Wow. So, you know, and this is, uh, and I've got, it's funny you say that about earlier. It's like, hey, anybody listening, you don't get diabetes from just eating sugar. You know, there, I've heard a lot of things that I, have no idea if they're true. Um, yeah. But as far as like what triggers the onset is part of that discussion. And some people have said trauma. So like if you're predisposed or whatever, maybe. So again, I'm not the scientist here. I'm just regurgitating <laughs> information that's been thrown to me. And it, cause I mean, the trigger event of that and instantly just dropping 60 pounds, like very quickly. And that's kind of what began to happen. So I was married at the time, uh, my first marriage and her father was a diabetic and so she had experience with this. My grandmother was diabetic, but we're going back, you know, in the archives of of using the old uh, orange syringes. And yep. so I didn't learn anything about it back then. But as I started dropping weight and dropping weight and having used a bathroom every 15 minutes all night and constantly being thirsty and, you know, she was like, I think you're sick. I think you need to go to the hospital. But I had an excuse for everything because mm-hmm. I also have sleep apnea and I had just started getting using a CPAP. And I was like, no, it's just that I'm I'm getting better sleep. Okay. And she's like, well, you have to use the bathroom all the time. I'm like, I drink a lot of water. She's like, you're thirsty all the time. I'm like, but I drink a lot of water. <laughs> um, <laughs> and as far as the weight loss was concerned, now that I had had the surgery, I was starting to do rehab and I was starting to hit my gym downstairs. And I figured sometimes you just kickstart your metabolism. And I was making better food decisions, sugar-free monsters instead of regular monsters. Just anyways, not because of diabetes. So I just, I was able to excuse so much of it away, but yeah. Over Thanksgiving, I lost six pounds. Wow. So I'm like, all right, maybe one more month of this. And at that point, I realized the gloves were off. It was like being in a dream or playing Grand Theft Auto. Where you can just do whatever you want and get away with it. Like I had ice cream every single night. It was amazing. But like as an outside salesperson, it was brutal. You couldn't go five feet without knowing where the next restroom was. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're like, all right. And but I mean, it was nice for a little that little kind of period of a few weeks where I could just eat whatever I wanted, whatever I wanted. And finally I told her if I get under 155, I'll go to the doctor. And that's what happened. And then they put me in ICU uh, in Memorial hospital in Tampa. My blood sugar was over 800 by the time they brought me in. And uh, I felt fine. You know, I had those symptoms, but other than that, like I felt fine. I remember being in ICU and there's some dude like dying from a stab wound next to me, you know, in the room next door. And I'm like, unhooking my IV, walking around, looking for a bathroom, bitching about the food. <laughs> I think it was. <laughs> so, I mean, that was a, that was a shock to me though. That was a bit of a life change. And at that point I had had a few things happen to me already, kind of a few big things. And so of course I had it in my head that maybe I've already had my share. Uh, that was foolish. And uh, you know, this one was a big one for me because at, at that point partying wasn't really a big part of my life, but mm-hmm. To think, oh, I can't drink, I can't do this, like all these changes I'm gonna have to make. And it just I think I spent about 15 minutes really feeling sorry for myself. How old were you when you got diagnosed? I was 27. Would you say, and I always ask this because a lot of the guests I've had, they all have been mostly older when they've gotten it, where I was before the partying with college. Do you think it was better that you got it at the age that you had it, or do you wish when you were younger to really kind of learn how to adapt and into being a diabetic? It's a tricky question. Cause it's, I try never to ask myself the butterfly. It's a lot of what ifs. Yeah. And cause there's very little I would change about what's happened to me. Yeah. Um, 
And that's one of them. And I'll tell you what, here's, I'm going to say that I would definitely have it rather now than before. And here's another reason now too, the wealth of information that is available to us right now that was not available to us then. Um, I don't know how it was like for you, you know, or, or anyone who, who's had some practice at this, I guess, you know, I, I had to learn pretty quickly that the doctors are the least helpful people in this, in this journey. Um, (laughs) And we just didn't have the same things back then that we have now, you know, like we don't have global instant worldwide access to other diabetics. Um, You know, you're in St. Louis, right? Yep. Yep. So we wouldn't be talking and I'll tell you what, the biggest resource for me that I have found yet has been Instagram. Yes, I, I can definitely agree with that. A lot of it because, you know, I'm, I think I spent the first part, it was pretty well controlled at first. So when I liked my doctor, he gave me my instructions and I learned how to live with it. You know, I made some subtle changes, um, sugar-free this instead of sugar that, which really didn't bother me that much anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, I drink my coffee black instead of cream and sugar now, which turns out I like it better that way anyway. Um, you know, a few things like that, but for a while it was kind of fine. And it, I didn't start the endurance stuff until later. And, you know, I spent a good part of my mid thirties or my early thirties drunk. And to be honest, I controlled it pretty well then too. Um, yeah, I know I was, I was overweight. I was drunk and making terrible food choices. And yet I somehow had better overall control over my blood sugar than I did probably the last three years. And but then because as we get older too, everything that you start to know, it just seems to be a little bit harder. But once I started getting into the endurance racing, I mean, I had volleyball figured out. I had drinking figured out. Like I would like, all right, I'm going to have this many carbs. Uh, <laughs> I can have this. I can't have that. And so when I finally started getting into the endurance racing and stuff, it's like I had to relearn everything all over again. And because there's so many variables too, like, I read this book that I do recommend for a lot of people. I think it was called the, the athletes, the diabetic athletes guide or the I'm looking forward to my shelf here and it's too many books on the floor, but the <laughs> athletes guide to diabetes, I'm going to get you that name, but it was pretty good because it gave me a lot of the science that I hadn't really learned before. Um, and there was a whole other section though, that was just personal stories from other athletes in different sports. Um, what they do, how they do it. And honestly, it was the first time that because the physical aspect of diabetes is one thing, but the amount of times I've just lost my mind, you know, or like struggled mentally and emotionally because of the fact that my body is constantly working against me and Mm -hmm. preventing, trying to prevent me from living the life that I want to live. And sometimes it gets overwhelming and sometimes it's just emotionally hard to deal with. And I can't speak for other people, but that frustration, like I just, well, need to explode. And to think that I was the only person like that was even harder. And, you know, to, to, so that's why I say Instagram, you see these one or two sentence things that number one, you're not alone, but yeah. number two, since you sort of choose your feed, you, you get to see like, Oh, these are other athletes who do this. And, you know, so I follow a lot of other diabetic athletes and just, other people like that. And I forget the initial part of the question. Oh yeah. As far as like then or now, I would say now, I think anybody dealing with issues now has more opportunity to own their issue than they ever had before. I kind of wish the now part was for me because when I got it, social media wasn't a thing. You couldn't really connect. Doctors were the only thing available to help. I mean, unless you found like a chat forum and back then those are sketchy. But social media has played such a big part in my journey because when I'm telling my friends and family about the stuff that I go through, it's hard to explain it for them to understand because I'm living it. So I can easily say, this is how I feel. This is what's happening. And doctors, because they only know it from a medical side, other diabetics, it's easier because they're like, oh yeah, I just had that last night. Or I know how you're feeling. And they're able to explain what they would do. And it's not like I'm thinking... I'm going to do exactly how they're going to have do it. And then I'm going to have the same results because that never happens. We all have to adapt into what our lifestyle is, but it's one of those trials and errors, but it's been frustrating. But to me, the last few years have been the best journey for me through weight loss and really controlling it that 
I wish I'd started that the journey that I've been on now years ago, instead of waiting until a certain time in, in my life. I would say if I would have done anything different, it would have been to own it earlier. Yeah. And that just means like, you know, I think that's part of the problem is when things are easy, we don't pay attention. Mm -hmm. And so in the beginning, it was kind of easy. If I had a low, whatever, I'd correct the low. It's no big deal. I wasn't trying to manage my weight. I wasn't trying to manage, you know, athletics. It was just take insulin with meals, adjust as necessary. You know, yes, I'm the one who kind of add complications to my life. But at the same time, like that's diabetes tried standing in the way of that. So in my mind, that was more like, hey, Nick, this is your path. Mm -hmm. What's the biggest thing diabetes has taught you about yourself? Ooh. Man, that's a tough one. <laughs> oh, this is terrible because all I can think of negative things. <laughs> like, so, I mean, like last night, for example, uh, yesterday was a tough day. We went and did this uh, tourist thing, not tourist thing, but uh, out in Florida, it's hard to know that it's Christmas time. So <laughs> there's a exhibit out in Orlando. It's called Ice at the Gaylord Palms Resort. Um, it's ice sculptures. It's nine degrees in there. And this year was like the Grinch stole Christmas. It's incredible. You should look it up. But so I went out there with my wife and mother-in-law and uh, her husband. And because of that, though, you know, we're like, hey, where should we get lunch? And it's like, so I, I had my run yesterday, had my breakfast. Um, I had the same breakfast pretty much six days a week. Um, can, you know what? Nope. Answer the question. All right. Well, I'll tell that story. But anyways, yesterday, then we had Mexican for lunch. And of course, you're out in the middle of it's hard to, hard to get the, the ratio correct. So yep. sugar's going up a little bit high, but we had a late lunch. We didn't get home till whatever. So we didn't really have a regular dinner. We just sort of ate scraps and snacks. And then last night, my blood sugar was nearly 300 till the middle of the night when I got up and corrected. So I feel really crummy today. And, you know, that's, that's why I say negative, but the thing I just thought of the number one thing I think it helped to teach me or my takeaway is that I've realized and can see the value of consistency and because of seeing how something works, it's easier for me to enact discipline in my life. Mm -hmm. um, and just to give an example, you know, I said I ate the same protein shake. It's, uh, it's 115 grams of carbs. Um, oh. It's actually, it's 85 grams of carbs. Then I have a banana on top of that, uh, some peanut butter, some cinnamon, turmeric, whatever. It's actually a weight gain of protein that I ordered by accident one time and it just happens to work. So I left it there. Um, <laughs> But I train in the morning, you know, I mean, I'm burning anywhere from 600 to 1200 calories before the sun comes up. And then, um, you know, that's an 1100 calorie breakfast, but it's not sugar per se. Mm -hmm. And I have the dosage down almost to a science um, as long as I'm consistently training and I have that. So I only started that practice of figuring that out uh, maybe 12 months, 13 months ago. Um and I was just started to get on, how do I, how do I now look for the most consistent way of getting the lunchtime period? You know, I think the way that I'll continue to manage this is also knowing that as I get older here, it does get harder. Plus, you know, I hurt my back a couple of weeks ago. And if I can't run, I have to tweak everything all over again. Um, you know, I did the marathon in the end of September and a couple of days after a marathon is going to be squirrely and then travel. I don't know if that's a thing, but it, seems to affect me, um, at least a day of travel. And then of course we come home from the marathon and that was when the hurricane had hit Florida. So we had lost power for five days, Oh yeah. but I wasn't home for it, <laughs> <laughs> but my insulin was skunked. All my insulin was bad by the time I got home because all the power yeah. had gone out and then back on. And so, but I didn't know that, you know, so there's about a three week period where everything's going back up again. So you constantly have, to, you have to be vigilant because those things, life is going to happen. So I guess we have to control the controllable. And that really just helps me focus on consistency. Things that in my life, I would say 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, I, yeah, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have wanted, you know, I didn't want to do the same thing all the time, but maybe it's just that I hadn't found the thing that I enjoy doing all the time. Consistency is so true because for me, if I noticed that diabetes control is a lot easier for me if it's consistent, my days. Mm -hmm. So like eating lunch at the same time. So if my family's like, let's eat lunch at 2 p.m., I go, can we bump it up a little bit earlier? Because dinner's usually around the same time. Lunch is around the same time. Workouts are around the same time. But 
when you talked about consistency for you, this is what diabetes has taught me. You have to rise to every challenge you face. It's not going to be perfect. Even the ones we see on Instagram that think that they have it perfect, they have the same issues. They sometimes show it. And it just shows that we all are going through something, but we're all rising to the challenge. Anyway, it's what we do with it now. And that's, that is my greatest lesson with all the adversity that, and that's the greatest thing that obstacle course racing has taught me Yeah, because it, I threw myself into something that at the time I thought I shouldn't have. And it's, it is a lifestyle and that whole life just continues to, once you get a taste of overcoming something that everyone else says you're not supposed to overcome, it's a drug, (laughs) but also I'm surrounded by badasses who do the same thing i'm not the only diabetic out there you know like that's how you just learn more things and you see when someone else breaks that five minute mile you know everybody can or four minute mile everybody can and so that's that's a lot of the type that you of stuff that you see out there but also you know i it's i'm not used to hearing it yet which is still weird because you know i did put a book out so i guess i should but when people tell me that i inspire them that's fuel for me to go do more Mm-hmm. Like if somebody else, and as a matter of fact, like the amount of parents that tell me that they're inspired because of what I do and their son or daughter is diabetic. And it reminds me that I have a responsibility now. Like, you know, if I didn't want that, I could have just shut up, done my races and enjoyed it. But I opened my mouth and, you know, now I have a responsibility to, to just continue to do it. to so just continue to rise to the challenge, every challenge and live. This is, we're still here. Blood is still pumping. And diabetes is just one of the bazillion things that every other human being goes through on every given day. Well, in my intro, I mentioned you're a four-time cancer survivor. Talk about that journey through that. All right. Um, So similar time frame. seems a lot of things happened from that 05 to 08 period. Um, 2005, it was winter. I was living in Milford, Massachusetts, and... Um, I, I had just moved into this apartment a couple months before, but I started waking up with a substance, a dark substance on the back of my tongue. And I didn't really know what it was. So, um, I started seeing doctors and I saw all sorts of doctors and nobody knew what it was. I mean, they did, you know, the, um, can't think of the word here now. Okay, well, if there was an if there was a, a crevice on the body, they stuck a tube there and looked to see if there was anything wrong. So it was an unpleasant couple of weeks, and uh, I had finally seen an endocrinologist, and I'm sitting in front of him, and he's just feeling around my neck, and it didn't take long for him to pause. And as soon as he paused, even though I had no idea and never heard of thyroid cancer before, I knew right then and there I had cancer. Um, scheduled a biopsy, which we did in the beginning of January. And then about a week later, the results came and confirmed that it was a papillary carcinoma. It was a really weird feeling because I swear I knew. It's like, hmm, okay, it's cancer. And uh, so they took out the half, they took out half my thyroid. Uh, Supposedly they had taken out the whole thyroid. That's a whole backstory that I still don't even have the pieces on. Um, Cause well, I'll tell you more about that in a moment, but we never found out what was causing the blood though. Um, I'm pretty sure it was just that my gums were bleeding because it was a dry New England apartment with a furnace from 1400s or something. (laughs) So, and I think I, because again, sleep apnea and I didn't have the mask and my mouth was open. I think it was just that. Um, But we'll take that as a, a, you know, God helping me find my cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, So fast forward then uh, we did that. We took it out and they gave me a radioactive iodine uh, which is a very, I mean, it's a pill. It's a pretty non-invasive. You don't really feel any effects of anything. And it's just supposed to knock out the rest of the stuff, but it is radio it's radioactive. So you have to hide from people. You can't be around people for days. Um, and you can't use the same water supply as somebody else, or you could literally get them well, radiation poisoning. So mm. imagine like, it was like springtime in New England at that point, it was nice out. And I'm sitting in my 500 square foot apartment, like all by myself, like, okay. Why can't I go outside and play? I feel fine. <laughs> so then we fast forward uh, 2007, uh, just a couple months after I'd been diagnosed with diabetes, I'm seeing my endocrinologist 
And he decides that since not, we weren't following my cancer, that he wanted to order an ultrasound, which is standard. I get about one or two a year now. Um, and as he's, as they're, as they're clicking around there, you know, I, I swear they paused at one point and I just felt like I knew again, and I have no idea what they're doing. Like, you know, you hear the certain patterns, but at the same time, like, does that really mean it's there? I don't know. I never was educated on, uh, what's the word for that? Like technician, something rather. We'll go with that ultrasound technician. Sure. Anyways. So I just kind of had a bad feeling again. And then I saw the doctor and he's like, yep, they found some stuff there that doesn't look like it belongs. And I was like, including a thyroid, right? Cause they should have taken the whole thyroid out yet. I had a whole other half. And we only found that out then when trying to find the original doctor, he was gone, abandoned his practice, like vanished. So oh. yeah, I don't know what happened, but um, we did an ultrasound, not an ultrasound, I'm sorry, a biopsy, which was just about the most miserable experience. I described it a couple of times in the book. Um, and if you hadn't got that part, the, I always, de- I always describe it like the scene in casino where Joe Pesci takes the pen and just stabs that dude in the ne- neck a bunch of times. I don't know if you've <laughs> seen it, but that's what a biopsy of the thyroid feels like. It's just getting jabbed in the neck. It's miserable. They're like, oh, this won't be bad just for a minute. And you're just like, oh my God, make it stop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that confirmed that it was cancer. And then they took out the second half of the thyroid. Um, that surgery, my first surgery was hell. Um, I mean, it was hell. I had a bad reaction to the anesthesia. I was vomiting for, for hours, which is miserable since you just had surgery on your throat. Um, I mean, it was... I was begging for death. It was bad. Uh, the second time I'm sitting in the waiting room or the recovery room and the nurse comes by asking me if I needed pain meds. And I was like, I'm not on any, like it was so smooth. <laughs> I went home that night. Like before I went in for surgery, I'd been working on a presentation for work and I was actually enjoying it. I got home and went to my desk and continued the presentation. Like it was, I felt great, but I did have to go through the radiate, the radioactive iodine again. Um, and so we just, just again, just sitting in my apartment by myself. And so that one was a little bit unique only because the first time I got sick, I didn't care. Um, it was cancer. So it was kind of scary. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, being independent, I didn't really have, you know, I called my dad and told him, but like, I didn't have a big structure around, you know, at the same time, I'm not sure I would have felt comfortable with it. I never had that. Yeah. But in 2007, I was engaged. We were supposed to be getting married like a month after the surgery. I And I didn't know what was going to come of it. I had no idea what it would look like on the other side. I didn't know about the radioactive iodine. I had no idea. I didn't know if I was going to live. You know, all I know is I have cancer again for the second time in three years. That That's not a good thing. Mm-hmm. And everything ended up going smooth. And then I really hadn't heard of cancer again until 2013, where lo and behold, we found another nodule sitting back against the, uh, in the thyroid bed, um, right up against like kind of tucked between the vocal cords. And that one's actually been there since 2013. Um, it was a really small, really non-aggressive and they, the surgery would have been pretty risky to get it out. And, uh, leaving it there, I guess, is not very risky comparatively, as dumb as that sounds. We looked at a couple different options. Like one was like alcohol obliteration. Um, I don't remember another one, but every one of them seemed to have a drawback that the team of doctors was basically trying to just convince me to wait. And that's not really my MO. Um, No, I'm like, okay, but it's cancer and it's in my throat, right? I'm like, well, I got a pocket knife at the car. Let's go. (laughs) I'm like, give me something to fight. I'm, I'm not, send me into battle. I'll, I'll accept the risk, but to sit here and be like, Hey, cancer, please don't get worse. Like every time I go to get it checked, people are like, good luck. I'm like, well, there is no good luck. There is no good answer that will happen here. Mm-hmm. It's either gotten bigger or it's just still there. And either way, I'm still leaving here with cancer today. <laughs> but to be honest, that was hard to get over at first, especially because I was truly in the throes of my drinking and towards the end of my, of my drinking career at that point. And it was my excuse to just dive in the bottle. So mm-hmm. I was like, well, I have inoperable cancer. Nobody's going to mess with me here. I'm just going to get drunk. Um, which that's a, that's sidebar story. But um, ultimately I did get over the fact that there's nothing we can do. Well, there, there's nothing we're going to do about it. And 
most days I forget it's there. Um, you know, if one day we find out that we have to do something about it, I'll be prepared and ready. And there's a good chance though that I'll die with this tumor, not from this tumor. And then in 2016 was just a completely random fluke because at least these three times were the same cancer in the same spot. Um, but you know, you do sort of develop a bit of a mentality that there's only so many times you can get cancer and not die. And Mm -hmm. a lot of times I don't talk about my own cancer so much because, you know, as opposed to diabetes, right? Like, I don't know. I'm pretty sure we have the same diabetes. I don't know if there's one that's worse than another. I mean, as far as like type one, type one, right? Like, yeah. Not like, oh, I have type 1A, so mine is significantly worse. Like, it doesn't work like that. Whereas cancer, I don't talk to a lot of people with cancer whose story is easier than mine. Mm -hmm. You know, like when I go to Moffitt Cancer Center, I don't like to make eye contact with people. I feel bad the fact that I'm walking out and I can't say that for everybody else. And I mean, there are just some, some true harrowing stories. Like I said, I'm surrounded by incredible people who have gone through a lot worse than I have and, you know, continue to go out there and do it. But at the same time, I feel like I'm being selfish if I don't talk about my cancer, because there are people who are getting their first diagnosis right now, you know, and they don't know anything. And they just assume the same thing that most people do. Cancer equals chemo and death. Yeah. You know, those are the things that we hear, but not every story has to go like that. And mine hasn't yet. Um, I'm also well resolved to the fact that I'm not done because like I told you in 2016, I had a very random occurrence. I was getting massage. And she felt something in the back of my head and she goes, Hey, what's that? And I'm like, you gotta be shitting me. Cause I just knew <laughs> again, I was like, Oh great. I have cancer in the back of my head now. Like, and I was going to Moffitt, uh, Moffitt cancer center here in Tampa a couple of days later for my regular ultrasound anyway. And I was like, Hey, while you're at it, do you mind hitting back here? And they weren't really used to order somebody ordering off the menu, but um, <laughs> they did it anyways. And then there was some real back and forth because I had to go after that, and uh, we saw there was something there and then they had to do uh, a biopsy, which was pretty miserable, even it being right here, just in the back of your head. And what was worse is some, we confirmed cancer and then we set up surgery. And then my girlfriend, my wife and I now um, we're at Disney just messing around as kids do the day before surgery. And I got a phone call and they were like, Hey, we're going to have to postpone the surgery. And I'm like, what, what do you mean? Like, yeah, we're not sure really what the biopsy said and the doctor wants to take another look. So I just wanted this over, right? I'm mm-hmm. like, I don't care. Just take it out anyways. Let me just move on with my life. We don't have to get too meticulous here. <laughs> I just want this closed back to work. And uh, so then there was descript- he wasn't sure it was cancer. So they had to do another biopsy. And it was kind of weird because they they went in like three or four times because they have to like stimulate the cells to try to get enough cells so they know what to test. And um, so he wasn't even certain, depending on what they were looking at. And the way it was ultimately described, they took it out, surgery went fine. I have a nice little scar on the back of my head. You can't really see it anyway. And the way it was, I think, best described is it was it was a fatty pocket, like a lipoma, but there was a lymph node in there. And it was sort of like maybe the embers of a dying fire is how oh. it was described to me. So there were cancer cells in there. But if we had probably done that six months later, there probably would not have been found as opposed to it spreading. Wow. Something to, again, I'm regurgitating something from eight years ago and- <laughs> I'll tell you this. I was on during 2020, I was in like a big zoom call with a bunch of Spartan racers. It was me and somebody else who had gone through cancer and she went first and she knew everything. She knew the procedures, the name of the instruments, like the milliliters of this and that, like every scientific thing. She attended every like meeting with the doctors, you know, she really took over and owned and managed her cancer process. I barely can tell you the type of cancer I had. Um, (laughs) I think it was just so so weird to see a different approach mm-hmm. because I'm not a doctor and yeah. they are. I take all the best information I can and make the decisions that are available to me, but I don't want to know everything. You know, mm-hmm. it's like I'm trying to look at what's in front of me. And I'm not saying one way is better than another. As a matter of fact, mine is probably not the best way, <laughs> but it's just how I've managed to kind of survive and go forward. But it is funny how like, you know, you talk to somebody who, literally knows every little detail and i'm like uh yeah well bump knife cut 
went back to work. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> so as far as cancer is concerned, like I said, the it's, I do think it's important that those who are going through it, cause it can be scary for them to know they're not alone is one of the most important things. You talked about just minutes ago and throughout the journey that we've been on about obstacle course racing, has this opportunity given you a sense of empowerment where I'm going through diabetes or I've gone through cancer, but it's not going to stop me from doing what I want to do? It changed my life for that end. Um, there's no victim here and there's never a point I'm willing to accept that. And I can't say the same thing before obstacle course racing. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I want to think that I'm tough and I've always kind of managed to go forward. Right. Like even when I first got diabetes, like I was playing beach volleyball and I had to learn how to adjust, you know, it's not like I just quit playing beach volleyball because it got hard. Um, but at the same time, that wasn't my attitude. Then my attitude would have been far more concerned about, I can't do this or why is this happened to me or just struggling with the why and, you know, what life's going to be like and all those questions that don't have answers to them anyway. Um, there's, the rest of this afternoon isn't promised today. So I don't mm-hmm. need to dwell on the what ifs for two years from now. Um, so jumping in obstacle course racing was the most uncomfortable thing I had done. And I was running here and there a little bit. I had lost some of the weight because I was up to 230 at one time. 237, I think, was my peak. Um, I'm 185-ish right now. And that's like a good healthy weight for me. And But I actually lost probably 30 pounds, 35 pounds before I even knew what obstacle course racing was. Uh, so I had already just sort of started to get back in shape. But as far as like truly getting up and training for something, I think the hardest part for me was like, I can't wake up that early before <laughs> work. And I know I heard you say in your call, you're like, yeah, I like to get up about a minute and a half before I got to start. And I'm nice and fresh and ready to roll. Like I'm, I'm the opposite. I will be in a bad mood for three hours after I wake up if I don't. <laughs> have that acclimation period and even before i kind of got into this life where i'm a sicko who gets up at four in the morning now like i don't enjoy waking up early but i don't enjoy waking up at 10 in the morning either so it really doesn't matter to me yeah (laughs) um but that was one of the biggest honestly cover just changing that aspect of my life of waking up in the morning to train for something with purpose allows me to overcome everything else yeah Cause if I can do that. And so, you know, you go through an obstacle course race and it's one thing, yeah, I can jump over walls or I can carry a big object, heavy object for this or that. But you know, it starts with overcoming little challenges, right? And so you want to do it again. And then you're like, Oh, I failed that obstacle. I want to keep doing this until I accomplish that obstacle. And then you start to want to get better at it, mm-hmm. but getting better at it doesn't just mean I run faster. It means I have to make other changes in my life too. So that means if I'm going to wake up at four in the morning, I need to be able to go to bed on time. So now all of a sudden I have a sleep schedule. You know, I only sleep maybe six hours a night, which probably work on increasing that sometime. (laughs) But at the same time, like I said earlier, that's kind of the most I've slept anyway. And don't get me wrong. I can sleep. If I didn't have anywhere to be, I'm not (laughs) the guy who wakes up at the sun. I can sleep. I just choose other things. And I kind of always have. But now all of a sudden, because I want more energy, I'm focusing on my diet. I'm mm-hmm. focusing now on my diet more because of that than I ever was because of diabetes. And so now I have a healthier eating habits. Now I have a healthier schedule. Now I'm drinking more water, you know, and now I'm being more purposeful with my time throughout the course of the day and when I'm working and all these other habits begin to just improve because of this one aspect of my life. And I'm a YouTube junkie for like I will misdiagnose anything so I can fix it on myself. Um, <laughs> like I enter something, I just get on YouTube, find a bunch of videos. And yep. a lot of times you find, you find things. And because the information's out there, it's funny. I was talking to a buddy of mine and it, you may see this in the book, but there came a point where I just stopped playing volleyball. Honestly, it was probably just like a, my deltoid was a little sore and I was like, well, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas now, you know, I break a rib in a race and I run a marathon three months later. Like there's, there's, those the things that we think have to stop us or slow us down or pause we don't and so all these habits continue to just create like more momentum for me to yeah be a better person and and ultimately i have a purpose to do things now you know i have the ability to to help people what's your favorite obstacle Ooh, that's a tough one 
Yeah, it's, I'm probably as simple as it is going to say the monkey bars in the, in the Spartan race. Um, Maybe monkey bars, maybe the beater. They're both overhead obstacles. Some of them I'm still kind of not that good at. Like I I make it maybe 80% of the time. The beater is like, they're like monkey rings, but if you were not monkey rings, monkey bars, but if you've ever seen any pictures of like Spartan obstacles at all, they're, the bars are like these aluminum bars and they're thick and they're slick. And they also have varying distances between them. So they're not evenly spaced. Um, and of course they slick them before the race. And then by the time you go through. Why not? What's the <laughs> challenging? <laughs> it's, I've gone on a dry course and I'm like, why are my hands all like, <laughs> like greasy? I'm like, oh, cause they slick them. And so the beater is like the monkey bars, only a couple of them rotate. Oh my. Oh my and God. it's tough for some, but I've I've only fallen I've only failed that obstacle twice, and one time was because I was wearing a glove and it kind of folded back on me, and I lost my grip, which is why I don't wear gloves when I race anymore. Um, and the other time it was just really slippery, and I was just stupid. But uh, what I like about it though is because you ju- you go into it and you're like, all right, monkey bar, monkey bar, and then you reach high for the beater thing, which is like an egg beater on its side, right? And then. We just kind of <laughs> carries you through and I'm like it's fun. I'm like we grab the next one and just we so I'm gonna go ahead and say probably the beater right now. I've seen your photos and I see the monkey bars and I was figuring out my obstacle, even though I've never done a course, and I was gonna say monkey bars because when I was younger, I could do those easily. But then once you said the ones that are the distances and it moves, I'm like, well, I'm just gonna drop in the mud. So I just I, I better bring swim trunks for that event. But I just think I, my friend wants to do a tough mutter. And I feel like I could do it now. Years ago, before my journey, I would have said no. I'm, I would hate, I would fail, but I have gotten so much more confidence in myself and my fitness and health that I'm like, this is the time to do it. Like I'm ready, but now I got to go find one. I got to search the websites and be like, Okay, I'm gonna register. Put in my date. Put in my calendar. No interviews for that week because I got to train hard for it. So, just just that week you're gonna train, though, huh? Oh no! <laughs> I will be honest. I bike every day. Um, it is one of my guilty pleasures, and I just enjoy biking for 20 minutes. Um, during my lunch break at work, and it just tests myself to see how far I can go. And then working out has been an enjoyable experience. Um, just put a good TV show on and just start working out. Time goes by quick. But is there a, do you prefer the marathon or the obstacle course better? Like, do you prefer doing the obstacles? Because I know Spartan, there's probably running involved, but marathon is just strictly just running. So, it really depends on when you ask me. <laughs> if you asked me on September 26th, I would not, I couldn't wait to get back into a marathon. Um, Cause I had literally just run the Berlin marathon the day before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was a hell of an accomplishment for me on June 18th or 23rd or something. I broke my rib in the third mile of an eight mile obstacle course race. Ooh. And I finished the race, which we'll talk, talk about in a moment. Cause there's a message there, but the next three months I ran 400 miles with a broken rib and then I ran the marathon and I ran a PR of seven minutes and as exciting and just an achievement as that was for me to just suffer through all that. I had so much more to give and I missed my goal by five minutes. And the fact is I could have, I could have run 10 more miles. (laughs) I, I don't know how to race. (laughs) Like, I don't know how to race. Like I, I, I know how to suffer. And so I, I couldn't wait to get back out, but honestly, most of the time, my answer to that question, like right now will be obstacle course racing because it's different. You know, when I first started racing, it was kind of just going through the course, little running, little jogging, more about kind of making it through the obstacles. But now I've, I've kind of joined the competitive division and though I'm yet to be competitive, um, I like the race aspect, you know, I mean, I, I like the running, but it's in Spartan, it's not just running. So, I mean, I ran an, uh, an ultra, which was about 31 miles in Dallas last year. And the first half, which wasn't a half, they, they don't just, you do two laps of the same course, but to make up the extra distance, they add like a five mile loop 
uh, on the first lap usually. And so we had done that with the ultra loop and I came in the transition area. It's like 10 ish in the morning or something. So, I mean, I'm crushing it that day. I'm feeling great too. And uh, you know, you go out for that second half, but we're in Dallas, no shade. It's like 130 degrees at that point. I'm making up the temperature, but it was warm. And so you're slower mover a little bit and the, not all the course is runnable, you know I mean? It's mm-hmm. not just like cross country or like you're running on highway and a lot of people don't realize just how much distance you can make up when you have like 15 feet of easy ground to run that 15 feet. Like yeah. just always, 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 always keep moving, you know, like uh, don't ever stop. You want to talk to your buddy, do it walking. You need a snack, take it walking, just keep moving. And so I, I like the obstacle course racing because also, yeah, you might get some hills or something in a marathon, but beyond that pavement is pavement. I mean, with the Spartan and, even other brands. I mean, you're this weekend, this past weekend in Florida, it was just cow poop land and, and swamping gators. <laughs> Not very exciting, but I mean, half the year I'm climbing mountains, you know, I'm like running around some dirt track, this unique venues that challenge. The thing about Spartan is they challenge all of you. Um, one of the obstacles in the swamp there in Florida is called the swamp march really. And they literally just walk you through swamp. But last year it was 1.7 miles of swamp, just and I'm not talking like you're wading in. I mean, it's needed chest. There's divots and holes, and it's one thing that it was physically challenging to get through it. But the way it was laid out is you kind of come out of the woods and you start in the swamp and you figure a couple hundred yards and they dump you somewhere else, right? Well, after a couple hundred yards, you start to take this turn and you veer around and you're like, "Ooh, this thing goes on for a while." And okay, and that's not so big a deal yet, right? And you're literally like trudging through, trying to come. You come to a next kind of turn, you don't see land anywhere (laughs) and if you look far off in the distance all you could see was people coming back to you still in the swamp and that's when that's when i wanted to quit that's where i was looking for a ripcord if there was a way off the course i probably would have taken it and that's why i love spartan because that it makes you want to quit and you when you don't quit you know that gives me five more years of leveling up. <laughs> yeah. Um, as far as rising to the challenge, the amount of challenge that you can walk through, that you can rise to, and that you step up to, just because of that mental aspect of, you know, there was a minute of panic. Mm-hmm. Like, how do I get out of here? And I'm like, oh, you don't, right? Like, and you can't. You can panic when your diabetes is hitting you and life is hitting you, but there's no ripcord. You're still in that chair. You still have to make decisions. You still have to move forward. And, so, whereas I love the marathon, it's it's the obstacle course race for me. It just covers all aspects of suffering and celebration. Looking towards the future, what are some personal goals or professional goals you have for yourself? All right. Um, professional goals. I absolutely want to transition out of and I don't mean immediately. I have a good job. I like it a lot. Um, it's a good company, interesting economic time for it. But regardless of that, not like I'm trying to get rid of my day job, but I want to transition to be a motivational speaker. I'm working on another book right now, uh, sales motivation. Um, I see a life for myself in that professionally. And, you know, we're probably talking two to three years on the minimum side, hopefully sooner, or hopefully that's, Hopefully that's a good time range, but as far as personal, um, that is also the personal goal. You know, I can't wait to get this other book out. Um, you know, obviously through the fire was my memoir. Um, I, I did send it to some agents when I, when I finished it, did not get much attention, nor did I expect it to. Um, I didn't really think it was going to be a commercial, commercially published book, but I, it wasn't for that. I didn't care if I made any money on it. I just wanted the person who needed it to find it. Mm-hmm. Um, this next book is, yeah, no, I want to sell it. <laughs> no yeah this one is there's a lot of me in there and it's a lot of the same concepts because really through the fire was like it was telling my story but it's telling my story with the lessons i learned from the story mm-hmm. you know what i mean whereas and now a lot of those i have that same mentality because this next book i'm writing a lot of it is self-talk you know it's like right now when i'm come home after a crappy day or a day where i just don't feel like i've got what it takes to give to the team or so much of it is just shut up you're getting paid do the job do your your best (laughs) that's it just do your best whatever you have and so a lot of those but the i have one physical goal for this coming year which is to uh complete the killington ultra 
the Spartan race, the 31 mile uh, obstacle race in Killington, Vermont. I ran it in two, 2021 and I DNF'd by about six minutes. I missed transition. Um, you, you ever see the movie Scream? Is it the one with the... No, probably not. Okay. I, I'm thinking of something that might be from it. I just, I don't want to feel stupid and say, oh no, well, you're thinking of a different thing. Well, it's a horror movie, movie that, yeah. you know. I thought it was a horror movie, but I'm thinking of the Scream Mask. Which is where it came from, so. Okay, so I'm thinking of something similar, but I probably did not watch it because I'm not a horror film fan. The opening scene, the girl who is at the house is getting murdered by the bad guy and right in front of her parents, but they cut her larynx and she can't scream. They can't see her. She's literally like 100 feet away from her. That's how I felt DNF in Killington. I could see the transition at two o'clock. It was, and again, I had so much more to give. So in 2020, this year, that was my goal, but I broke my rib three weeks, three months before. And whereas that's why I decided to just focus on the marathon because I couldn't twist. I couldn't lift. I couldn't, it's just now starting to heal. And uh, so that is my, I've got a lot of races signed up and a lot of things I want to do. Um, and let me know if you're looking at a Tough Mudder, because I'd love to come join you. But awesome. my big goal for the year is the Ultra in Killington, Vermont. We're excited to see you do that. The me fi- too. <laughs> <laughs> the final question I'll ask you, for someone that's listening to this interview, based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals, and rise to the challenge? All right. I love that. There's a, there's a book by Matt Fitzgerald, which I highly recommend you listen to it if you haven't. It's called The Comeback Quotient. Um, in that book, he literally talks about, well, coming back. And the very first thing is we have to accept where we are. We have to accept that I'm a diabetic. You're a diabetic. Like that is our baseline. So we have to accept our circumstances. Um, Pretending that we're not, pretending that we don't have weaknesses, feigning strength when we don't will not help us. We have to accept where we're starting. And then second is we have to assess, you know, what are the steps that we have to take in order to achieve things? And that's like in beach volleyball where I realized I just needed to check my blood sugar between levels. You know, now it's a lot more complicated, but still you might be starting at a place, you know, maybe your, maybe your starting line is 20 feet behind the starting line and you have to work a little bit harder to get there, but you still have the same opportunity to do it. We have to just assess how do we get there? Ultimately can't accept any excuses from ourselves as to why we can't perform whatever that is. This is our life. We get one chance to live it. And to be honest, failing at trying to live your life despite our circumstances just means you're still living a pretty awesome life. I told you I missed my pe- I, I missed my goal in the Berlin marathon by five minutes. I still PR by seven. <laughs> So assess, accept where we are, set big goals, assess how to get there, go out and live hard. Well, Nick, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people and we're excited to see what the future looks like for you. Oh, it's been awesome, man. I really appreciate you having me and uh, glad we connected. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow, subscribe on all major audio platforms, and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to see the full-length episode in video format. What path do you take to accomplish your goals? You decide. <laughs>